We're going to be in Luke 6 and 7 this morning. As you do, hear the word of the Lord from the book of Jonah. This is the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4 in the prophet Jonah. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And the king of Nineveh arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king of Nineveh issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to Yahweh. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah was obviously a prophet caught up in his feelings. And God got right to the point, said, Do you do well to be angry? When Jonah gives this description of God, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he is remembering God's word to Moses the second time up on Mount Sinai. This is God's revealing of himself to Israel, and now by his grace he has revealed it to Nineveh, the enemies of Israel. And and Jonah is ticked off. See, Jonah had an understanding, personally, of God's loving kindness, his covenant chesed love, but he did not really know God's kindness. Even this prophet needed to be reformed in his understanding of God. Perhaps you're caught up in your feelings this morning. Um, To be personally extremely honest, I've been pretty caught up in my feelings the last few days, too kind of feeling like Jonah in some ways, though not with the same background. God has also been asking me, do you do well to be angry? Instead, know my kindness. This morning, that's what we will be talking about. Kindness, specifically the kindness of our King Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask for your Spirit to take your word, to plant it deep in us. We pray that your kindness would impress us, not in a distant, impressive sort of awe sort of way, but in a near, close, personal reality for us. May we know you today, Jesus, as kind. And in your name we pray, amen. So hopefully you've turned to Luke 6 by now. Um, two mornings ago, I, was, I ran to O'Reilly's real quick to pick up some new wipers for the church van because I knew that it was going to rain on the women who were going up to Lake Geneva. 
and I knew that our church van windshield wipers are bogus. So, can I get an amen? amen. But they're not bogus anymore. I ran to O'Reilly's, and it was, it was a tight timetable. They were leaving, and actually, we had to go to the funeral first, but I had to get it done before that. Um, and the guy over, over O'Reilly's was extremely kind. I had no idea what kind of wipers to buy, because I don't usually buy wipers for a Ford Transit 2014. But he looked it up in the computer, and the computer only had one listed, but the wipers are two different sizes. So he's like, all right, go grab them off the van, bring them in, we'll measure them. We did that. He figured out what we needed, got the wipers, and then he said, let me just put them on for you. So we walked out, and he put them on. And these wipers, you had to like take the adapter off, put a new adapter on to adapt it for the Ford Transit, and he did it. Now, you might say, well, he was just doing his job. That's good customer service. And perhaps that is in the O'Reilly employer manual, or employee manual. However, he wasn't kicking rocks as he did it. He was genuinely kind in his exhibition of kindness. And I would use him as an example of God's exhibition of kindness towards us. You might say, well, of course God's kind. He has to be kind. No, I want you to hear this. Yes, God has to be kind because God is kind. So because God is kind, he shows kindness. And we're going to encounter the God of kindness here in Luke 6 and 7. What is kindness? There, there are a lot of ways to describe it. This, for this morning's purpose, I want to define it as this. Kindness is intentional grace towards another. Intentional grace towards another. To say there's someone that I can show kindness to and I will. I'm not kicking rocks doing it. I'm seeing a need, a way that I can serve, love them, and I'm going to do it. That is kindness, intentional grace towards another. If you look in the middle of chapter 6 of Luke, verse 35 says this, The Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So we're moving from a, thinking about personal kindness, human kindness, to the reality that God himself is kind. And Jesus says this about the Father. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind. How does he act in kindness? If you just scoot back a little bit into verse 35, as Jesus is instructing his disciples, he reveals how God displays his kindness. He says to his disciples, Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So that gives us a snapshot of God's kindness. He loves his enemies. He does good to his enemies. And he is generous to his enemies. So when we look at God's kindness, God's kindness is intentional grace toward his enemies, which is a kindness that you and I rarely show. But this is the essence of God's kindness, intentional grace towards his enemies. And how does he define his enemies? As we've already read, they are the ungrateful and the evil. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That's the purpose. That's the intention of God's kindness. So then, from what Bill preached two weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. So I want you to see the progression here in God's kindness. The Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And now Jesus has arrived on the scene, the Son of God. And he says, my mission here is to call sinners to repentance. His call to sinners is the working out, is the intention of the kindness of God. Jesus Christ embodies the kindness of God. So a question for us to consider this morning that will lead us ultimately to a main point that I will give you at the end of the sermon is this. How is God kind to the ungrateful and evil? Through the intentional grace of Christ to sinners. He is our kind king. Well, let's go to the text, Luke 6 and 7 here. We're going to have two steps this morning with a, par a parenthetical interlude in the middle. Step one of God's kindness is this. The kind king 
calls sinners to repent. And that's how I'm going to kind of summarize all of chapter 6 as we read it. What Jesus is doing as he arrives on the scene here is he's stirring up the pot. The Jews have been just kind of blah in terms of their understanding of God. Their hearts are hard. Their spirits dead. Their faith futile. And so Jesus arrives, the kind king, calling sinners to repent to stir up the pots of their hearts. Because those hearts have to be broken. They have to be shaken in order for faith in him to be planted and then to spring up. Who's the first that he confronts? Well, he confuses the self-righteous. We'll start in the beginning of chapter 6, but before I go there, I want to highlight this. These people that he's going to be talking to are the so-called sons of Abraham. The so-called sons of Abraham. In 3 verse 8, John the Baptist, as he's preaching a gospel of repentance, like, hold up, you're going to tell me that you're the sons of Abraham. Let me just tell you this, you're not. And God could raise up the sons of Abraham from the stones if he wanted to. You are definitely not the sons of Abraham. So Jesus is confusing the self-righteous, shaking up their identity to bring about humility. But Jesus is also kind of a riddle to them. He's also kind of a riddle to them. In 524, Jesus says this, You may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he heals the man who was paralyzed. This Son of Man identity of Jesus was a riddle. Because in Ezekiel, the Son of Man is used specifically as a way to describe a regular human man. But if you look in Daniel chapter 7, I won't read it right now, but it is, you can read it later on. There is an incredible description of the coming of the Son of Man down from heaven with all power and authority directly from the Ancient of Days himself. So when they hear Jesus talking about the Son of Man, they have to answer for themselves, who is the answer to this riddle? Who is Jesus saying that he is? Of course, Jesus himself is saying that he is the Daniel Son of Man. But to these teachers, to these Pharisees, to the lawyers, they have to figure out who is this Son of Man. A second riddle for them is who are the sinners? If you look in 5.31 and 32, Jesus answers them after they say, why do you eat, with tax, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Huh, who are the sick ones? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is riddling them with these realities that they have to consider, but they can only come to the right answer through the Spirit of God giving them the truth. So he's shaking them up. So we get to chapter 6 here. Actually, let me throw in one more new riddle. The end of chapter 5, they ask the disciples of Jesus about them not fasting like John's disciples do. And he says, listen, here's the thing. When you make wine, you got wine in old cattle bladders, those things get crusty. They get hard. If you try to put new wine in those old bladders, they burst as the fermentation happens. Saying, listen, when I'm coming, I'm bringing new wine. It's being put in a new system of understanding. They should have been thinking, riddling, what is he saying about this? What is this new system of religion that he's bringing about? How will we respond to what he is saying? And Jesus kind of gives them a heads up at the end of chapter 5, verse 39. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. He's basically saying, like, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts, gentlemen, you will continue to just drink the old wine. You'll be content with its quality, but I've come to bring new wine. So he comes into, ver into chapter 6, finally. And in chapter 6, let me just say this about what he's going to talk about with the Sabbath here to these men is that they understand the Sabbath as the defining point of their 
religious law-keeping. It is what affirms them as the people of God along with their circumcision. Jesus says, listen, you understand the law and that you have to serve it. I, the kind king, am saying the law was meant to serve you. The Sabbath was meant as a kindness. And then he illustrates that. Verse 1, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the, of the Pharisees says, why, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath has come from me. It's a kindness to people. David and his men were hungry. David and his men should eat. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and Jesus was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, all he said to them, looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. He so shook up their hearts that what poured out was fury. We must stop him. We must stop him. But again, the Sabbath was always meant as a kindness. Read the, the, the uh, Sabbath law in Leviticus through eyes of kindness, and the Lord will open it up to you. The Sabbath was always meant as a kindness. These scribes and Pharisees meant it as a burden. Next, the kind king calls sinners to repent and he does that secondly after confusing the self-righteous by clarifying the sons of the Most High. He's about to start talking. First, he's going to call apostles. I'm not going to read that, but he calls unlikely men to be his apostles, to be his messengers of the gospel to come. But then he moves into this Sermon on the Plain where he's going to talk to this broad group of disciples, but he wants them to understand that clearly all disciples are not true disciples. There were a lot of people, and so I want you to think of disciples not as the 12 at this point. He just identified them as apostles. Disciples are now this large group of people. Presumably, a lot of tax collectors and prostitutes and just sinners in general, perhaps even Gentiles, that were tagging along with Jesus now and were his disciples. They were following him. But Jesus is saying, it's not just about like hanging around me. I'm going to clearly, kindly define what discipleship looks like. And more specifically, when God has changed someone into one of his disciples, what their life looks like. So you're going to hear here blessings and warnings. You're going to hear that sonship requires heart change because the root of a tree has to be changed in order for the fruit of that tree to change. You're going to also hear, Lord, Lord, doesn't cut it. Just a verbal assent of, you are Lord. Instead, Christ's true disciples obey his words as a matter of life and death. So hear these words from Jesus, the Sermon on the Plain, starting in verse 17, as he clarifies who true disciples are. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Hear this, those are Gentile people. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and woe, 
healed them all. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on this crowd of disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You might notice that there were four blessed are you. Now you're going to hear four woes, and they pair up exactly with the four blesseds. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received already your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall then be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall then mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is saying, now, saying, do you want your kingdom now or do you want your king later? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Hear this beautiful opportunity, this promise that the Son of God is offering to people that they could themselves be called sons of the Most High. Not just followers, but sons. But he's saying, your, your lives are marked by kindness, intentional grace, radical generosity. Furthermore, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure in the heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Speaking of the mouth speaking, he then asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose... The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like 
who hears and does, and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Right now I'm reading a book called Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson. It's about the largest hurricane in American history. In the year 1900, this hurricane hit the city of Galveston, Texas, and tens of thousands of people were killed. The thing was, Galveston is basically a sandy plain, a sandy island. And these people were like, yeah, we're good. And even as the storm was coming ashore and the water was rising, the kids were playing outside. Wives were asking their husbands to come home, and they said, no, women, they're so scared of all these things. That's actually a quote from the book about this one man who responded to his wife in that way. The citizens of Galveston had different takes on it. Some of them saw the storm coming, and they ran. They left town as soon as they could. What Jesus is saying here is the storm is going to come. How will you handle that reality? Will your life be based on my words? Will you build your life on the rock of who I am? Will you show yourself to be a disciple because you hear what I say and do what I say? Or will you hear what I say, go in one ear and out the other, just call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, and prove yourself to not actually be my disciple? The wise and the foolish. So Christ, the kind king, has called sinners to repent, confusing the self-righteous, clarifying the sons of the Most High, so that people aren't just like, walking around in a vague sense of, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I love that guy. He says all kinds of cool things. He heals people. He even healed me. He's saying, no, even if I've healed you physically, you need more, more healing than that. You need your heart to be healed. His third group is that he praises Gentile faith and resurrects Jewish faith. He praises Gentile faith and resurrects Jewish faith. The kindness that he is about to show is unexpected grace that produces unexpected faith. Look at chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, his base of operations. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying to Jesus, um, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Hear what he says about himself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. 
And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. Oh, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus, the new Elisha, enters into Israel and he heals a Gentile, a Gentile's servant, a, a centurion's servant, marveling at the faith of this centurion, the faith that he longed to see in the people of Israel. And then he finds this Hebrew woman leaving the town of Nain. She's alone. Oh, sure, she has the pallbearers with her. A considerable crowd from the town was with her, but they weren't really with her. She was now alone, a widow and her only son dead. And Jesus shows her great kindness. No faith expressed from her. No running after him to grab the hem of his garment. He approaches her, has compassion on her, and says, do not weep. And young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus calls sinners to repent, and he's doing that by praising Gentile faith and resurrecting Jewish faith. That he might one day see every tribe, nation, and tongue before his throne because that faith is saving faith. Unexpectedly saving faith, which then moves to an interesting call to a sinner to repent. And this call is to the one who preached repentance, his cousin John. And Jesus seeks to care for John. John who is now in prison. John who has preached the gospel of repentance of sins. and Forgiveness from sins. But he was praying that wrath would come down. That the chaff would be burned up. And he hasn't heard anything like that from Jesus. Instead the supposed enemies of God he's being kind to. And he's wondering He's wondering as he's stuck in prison, what is going on out there? I thought he was the chosen one. And so verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. John, this is what's going on. So John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's doubts were deep. Make no, make no mistake. Should we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight and he answered them using a great combination of verses from Isaiah. He answered them, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And O oh John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Oh, Jesus, hearing from his cousin, knowing his despair in prison, wondering if his ministry was actually correct, Jesus kindly corrects his questioning. See, John was kind of in a Jonah position. He was preaching fire and brimstone, preaching repentance, preaching the wrath of God is going to come and it's going to burn. And he doesn't hear any of that in Jesus. Well, Jesus kindly corrects him through his disciples. And then he goes on to kindly commend 
John's ministry and say, but there's more. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Understand this riddle. John was the final prophet of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. He was entirely right to preach a gospel of judgment. The need for people to repent and be forgiven. But Jesus is saying, that's not the end of the story when it comes to God. Because repentance is a kindness. The kingdom has arrived in me. And even the least of those in the kingdom who now know me, they have tasted of the new wine, they're greater even than John. So Jesus has been shaking up all of his hearers. Would they respond? Would they correctly answer riddles? Would they repent as the Spirit moves upon them? And then we have a break. A beautiful parenthetical statement that connects with John's ministry to connect the dots to Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having baptized, been baptized by him. Flip back to chapter 3 real quick. Let's revisit John's preaching. Just to remind you of where he was coming from, look at verse 7. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, huh, trees bearing good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? We hear that question asked later on in the book of Acts, chapter 2. What shall we do? The Spirit of God was moving on these dead hearts. And they asked the question, they respond what shall we do? And John answers them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with one, with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Aha! And said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. What you need to realize is this. John baptized for repentance, and then the only thing those people had going for them after that was, well, he told us to do some things that displayed fruit of repentance. We'll go and do those things, but that's ultimately just hope in our own, our own work our own kindness, our own response. It's, it's our own fruit that is beginning to show out of our lives, but 
who then do we follow? And now John's in prison, so perhaps some of them had continued to hang around with John, but then once he's put in prison, those sheep scatter, they hear about Jesus, and they start following him. So Jesus corrects John's ministry, corrects John's understanding of him, and then he affirms John's ministry, he commends him, and then the people that are hearing Specifically here, here it says, the tax collectors, they do something interesting. They declare God just. The Holy Spirit does a work in them where repentant hearts then realize his words are true. We will now build our lives on his words. He is just. God is right. How did they know this? Because they were baptized with the baptism of John. There had been a work done earlier, and now Jesus was leading them into his kingdom work, into the new covenant work in himself. Can I just say this? A lot of times in our lives, God, God works in the parentheses. We may think, like even if you look back at your life, here are some major milestones in my life. When in reality, God's working down here in the parentheses. That's his providence. That's the fact that God, in his sovereignty, has details. Details. In, his, in the way that he leads you from, and me, from our status as ungrateful, evil, enemies of God. And leads us gently, calling us clearly by the good shepherd's voice to turn from our sins and to turn from him. And then life doesn't end there. He continues to work in the parentheses. Say, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to love you because I am kind. And so these tax collectors, the most despised, the most rejected, say, God is just. We will build our lives on the words of Christ. However, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Their minds were made up. Their hearts remained hard. They would not repent. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Jesus continues to say. What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Saying, we played the flute when John was around. He didn't dance. He was pretty serious. Now, Jesus, we want you to be serious. But you don't seem to be serious at all. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Which way do you want it, people? Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What Jesus here is saying is that there's a reality that in this world everyone is either foolish or wise. Everyone's either foolish or wise. We all start out foolish, for sure. Foolish in our sin, darkened in our minds. You can look at Romans 1. But the reality of this, the way to become wise is to reckon with the ministry of John and the ministry of Christ. To reckon with the need for repentance and the need for a savior. That is the only path to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Guess what? Fear entails repentance and faith. It entails hearing the words of God and listening. Because see, here's the thing. What is more foolish than rejecting kindness? What is more foolish than rejecting kindness? This is exactly what the Pharisees and the lawyers had done. They had rejected 
kindness. The kindness of God displayed in the preaching of John and the person of Christ. But we must also understand this. God's wisdom always appears foolish to man. God's wisdom always appears foolish to man. That is why the Spirit must illuminate our minds to understand. Because on our own, we're listening to the foolish woman and her cry. Come in here, come in here. Not knowing, as it says in Proverbs, that that is a house of death. Yet Christ shouts from his house, come in here, come to me, come and have life. He says, come to me to the foot of the cross, the place where the wisdom of God seems the most foolish. And know that God in his kindness has come down, has come down to make himself a fool for the sake of making fools wise. So I would ask each of us, are you a fool today? Or are you wise? Even as a Christian, there can be times when we are foolish. When we forsake the kindness of God. We continue to walk in our own ways. Our love for Christ grows dim. We choose other loves, other affections. Yet God continues to be kind. He continues to say, come and find life in me. And we have to finish with a wonderful story. We have to finish with a woman who the world would think a fool. And this anonymous woman is meant to be lifted up as the wise woman. Indicative of all the sin that has swept through all of human history, causing us to be fools. All of the sin that was in her life, walking in darkness and foolishness, and somehow she becomes wise. Why? Because not only does the kind king call sinners to repent, the kind king forgives sinners. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and Jesus took his place at the table. Have you heard what the Pharisee has been saying about him? And now all of a sudden Jesus is going to eat with them. He knew they had rejected him. He knew that they were fools. But he goes there so that he could welcome a woman of wisdom, a daughter justifying wisdom. Behold, here she comes, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Scandalous. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus Answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay it, he canceled the debt of both. Huh. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, 
for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased <clears throat> to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, Simon. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were with him at table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Somehow this woman had encountered Jesus. My best guess is that she was one of those disciples. Perhaps she was even baptized by John. Perhaps in the group with the tax collectors saying, God is just. And through God's grace, he gave her a new heart that afternoon. A new heart bursting with love because she, a woman of the city, she, a sinner, was now forgiven. Forgiven. And all she could do, all she could do to express it was to bring the alabaster jar that she would, would have used with perhaps her man friends and break that alabaster jar and said, now he is my friend. He has shown me the ultimate kindness. To which Simon may have thought, she forgets herself. And how she may, have she may have said, yes, I forget myself because he has forgotten me. And so now I do forget myself. My praise, my worship of my kind king is because he has been so kind to me. His scandalous kindness I, know I now show in the only way that I can. Though you may see it as scandalous, my love for him is such. Christian, have we forgotten forgiveness? Andy, have you forgotten forgiveness? For if I'm going to sit like Jonah and be angry, it's because I've forgotten the kindness of God to me. If you're going to sit in whatever emotion you're all wrapped up in and you're going to sit there, it's because you have forgotten God's kindness to you. The kind King Christ has said, go in peace. You are forgiven. See, here's where this main idea comes from as we've worked through these two chapters. The kind King forgives sinners... And forgiven sinners love their kind king. The kind king forgives sinners. He has been shaking them to repentance. Breaking hearts. Creating longing. And he says, you long for me. Come to me and find forgiveness. And truly forgiven sinners say, take all of me. What more could I give? What less could I give? Paul exclaims in Romans 5, For if when we were enemies of God, ungrateful, evil, we were reconciled to Christ, to God through the death of his son Christ, how much more, having been reconciled Christian, shall we be saved by his life? This woman was justified, but know this, her love did not end there. So when we are self-righteous, come to the kind Christ and be consumed by his righteousness. If we're wondering about our own discipleship, 
Come to the kind Christ and be consumed by his loving kindness. When we need faith, ask him. Ask him to surprise you with renewed faith. To resurrect what you may feel your, when you may feel your faith is floundering. Repent of your Jonah complex. Repent of my Jonah complex and believe that Christ is kind. And may our love for him continue to grow. I'm going to finish by reading a short story about C.S. Lewis, and then I'm going to pray Ephesians 3 for us. Because, brothers and sisters, we need the Spirit of God to give us strength to believe that we are actually loved. C.S. Lewis, when he was 51, when he was 51, after having written most of his books already, he came to a new Fresh awareness of being forgiven. Dane Ortland writes about this encounter and then what happened later in his book, Deeper. That happened in 51 when he was 53 years old. But in 1956, listen to some things that we can learn about Lewis's life. It, it was not, a, it was not a, a phase in his life that I've been a Christian, and all of a sudden, yeah, this one day I felt like really forgiven, and it was great. He wouldn't have expressed it that way anyway. But listen, in 1956, Lewis, writing to Mary Van Dusen, he reflects on the gospel by saying, I had assented to the doctrine of being justified, being forgiven, years earlier, and would have said I believed it. Then one blessed day, it suddenly became real to me and made what I had previously called belief looks absolutely unreal. Later, he writes to a woman named Mary Shelburne in 1958. I had been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins, or more strictly, before my theoretical belief became reality to me. Lewis writes her again the next year and responds to a comment she made about the difficulty of feeling that we are not worthy to be forgiven by saying to her, you surely don't mean feeling that we are not worthy to be forgiven, for of course, we aren't. Forgiveness by its nature is for the unworthy. You mean feeling that we are not forgiven. I have known that. I believed theoretically in the divine forgiveness for years before it really came home to me. It is a wonderful moment when it does. Would you bow your heads with me? For this reason, we bow our knees before you, Father. For it's from you whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, including Edgewater Baptist. And we pray, we ask, that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Oh God, give us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you, you, you God, you are able to do this because you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work by your spirit within us, to you, O oh God, our kind, most high Father, 
to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.